Open, outspoken. It's ophthalmology off the grid. An honest look at controversial topics in the field. I'm Gary Wirtz. Thankfully, ophthalmology is no stranger to innovation. In the past episodes, we've heard from Drs. Malik Cahook, John Bernal, and Damian Goldberg talking about innovation that they've tried to bring to market. Another physician joins the ranks this week, and his name is Dr. Sean Yanchulov. Sean takes us on his journey in medicine, starting with his arrival in the U.S. at age 18, and from there he walks us through pivotal moments in his career and pursuits to find solutions to all these problems in ophthalmology that he started noticing. We'll talk virtual perimetry, intraoperative aberrometry, MIGs, and more. Here's Sean. Ophthalmology Off the Grid is an independent podcast supported with advertising by Alcon. Today on Ophthalmology Off the Grid, I'm very excited to be talking to a uh, recently new friend of mine, Sean Yanchulov. Uh, Sean and I met um, actually earlier this year, and Sean has just had an amazing uh, life, an amazing career, and he's still young. And so it's really impressive to me uh, to meet someone who's done so much um, in, in, the, in the years since residency and still has such a long runway to go. So, Sean, uh, I hope that doesn't embarrass you, but you know, we would really love to hear about your experiences um, on the ophthalmic side, both in, in clinic and in industry, and hear a little bit about your story. What has led you to take some big steps, some bold steps in innovation and you know, maybe we'll just kind of kick it off there. Um, how did you get started in ophthalmology? And um, when did you start knowing that maybe innovation was um, particularly something you'd be interested in pursuing? Yeah, wow, that's a big question, Gary. And I hope we don't have to go way, way back. But uh, and again, I just wanted to say first, thank you for, for really uh, making me part of this. And thank you for the interview. I think these series are great. I, I think probably I would start way back um, when I looked in, in retrospect in my life, uh, um, it's it's kind of all started about when I was 18, when I came to this country. And, and I think I put that in the context of being young and emigrating from uh, uh, a country like Bulgaria um, after living for 18 years in uh, in communism. So once you take the step and you come to a completely different country all by yourself when you're 18, uh, I think that uh, probably one is less... <laughs> worried about making missteps or um, or taking risks. And and it does, as you said, I think many of the things that we do um, are a matter of calculated risk. We, we all make a decision uh, one way or another. And um, what I realized early on uh, as part of my training is that I was really drawn to coming up with solutions and, and optimizing um, the process, uh, optimizing technology, and uh, and it was uh, and it was something that ultimately I think the pool is so great that we all tend to ultimately do or default to where we have the natural tendency uh, to gravitate. So um, uh, when I came here, I went to college uh, at the University of Rochester, and um, and then I went uh, to Boston at Harvard for my medical training, um, where I also um, did a MPH in health policy management and finance. And, and frankly, this to me was an interesting part of my life, too, because um, when you go out of the purely medical domain where we t- treat patients one-on-one and when we look at 
pathophysiology and, and, and pure science, and you go to the public health side, which uh, to me appeared ultimately very disconnected, uh, like two separate parallel tracks where people exist in one world and the doctors in the other where we do patient care, uh, which I never really understood. But uh, when I did the uh, Master of Public Health problem, uh, program, it really opened up my eyes to uh, all the things we can do in a way that can scale very quickly uh, because the delivery of care uh, is really scalable. And, and also technology is really scalable. Um, one can do so much by seeing five or 10 or 20 or 50 patients a day. Um, and, and actually recently when, uh, when I was talking to uh, the folks at Alcon who took over the intraoperative vibrometry technology, I think last year uh, we reached about 500,000 patients who uh, were um, touched by that technology. And uh, on technologies like Lucentis, when I worked about 15 years ago, um, we have hundreds and hundreds of thousands of patients. And that scale, I think, as you have also realized, is really achievable when, when you innovate and when you get involved in technology and you come out of the comfort domain of just a direct patient care. Uh, and that requires a very different skill set. Well, that's very interesting, Sean. So it sounds like this MPH that you did actually set you up to start um, really analyzing problems from a global um, standpoint or um, trying to find solutions to big problems that could reach populations rather than maybe niche or orphan products that maybe could only apply to a few subsets of patients. So in looking at your track record, um, that really makes sense. The things you've innovated have had that ability to scale pretty quickly and had, have touched lots of lives, as you mentioned. So, so, so you, you were in training in Harvard after med school. At some point, you got interested in ophthalmology. Talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, uh, well, I, uh, I was initially interested in, uh, uh, and, I, and I, <laughs> that, that is always something that uh, is a matter of jest uh, between me and my friends, but I was initially heading towards obstetrics and gynecology uh, until in my last year when I went through the rotations, I, I realized uh, through my interaction with mentors and people in the medical school that uh, uh, I was kind of suddenly drawn to ophthalmology, which I didn't consider uh, before. And, um, and after medical school, I, I went to Duhini Eye Institute uh, at USC at the time, uh, which was a wonderful program and, uh, and actually quite a shock as well coming out of the uh, ivory tower, a very controlled environment into the LA County General Hospital, uh, which had a very busy surgical program and, and some of the highest trauma level uh, centers in the US. And, um, and it was really enjoyable, just the pathway of, of understanding ophthalmology, uh, treating patients, uh, and, and honing your surgical skills. Um, but even there, we were facing problems. For example, one of the first things we ended up innovating at the time with a colleague of mine, Peter Pham, um, who is uh, an ophthalmologist in Texas now, we realized that uh, very often in the county system, uh, patients would take about a month or two to get a visual field test at the time. So we would send patients for a visual field test for glaucoma, and they'll come three months later when, when actually they got the visual field test. So we, we, we decided to come up with a solution, and at the time, which was probably... 18 years now or 15 years, you can imagine this is the time when most people didn't quite know what we can do on the internet and there were no transactions on the internet. And we came up with a system for virtual perimetry. So we virtualized the uh, perimetry test 
Uh, and we came up with one of the first uh, cloud-based virtual perimetry where we can um, do a, in the internet browser, we can uh, uh, do a contrast sensitivity map uh, and a full 24-2 perimetry. And that was the beginning of, of actually one of the very first products uh, called Peristat um, that now um, I donated to the Keep Your Sight Foundation, which now does online screening for glaucoma uh, by taking a three-minute perimetry test, which is an emulation of the, uh, the office-based perimetry and something that we tested out at actually UCSF and at Stanford, and we showed that for moderate and severe glaucoma, which is 80% of the bread and butter undiagnosed glaucoma, it has a 90% sensitivity and specificity to pick up the defects. So that was kind of a, it really started out with a problem and we, we despite a very busy residency program, uh, we wanted to, uh, to try to solve it. And, and again, it also illustrated that even though this was something that um, really I had passion for and I wanted to solve, uh, even at that time, it required collaboration and partnership uh, with somebody else at the time with Peter uh, for us to come up with the system, engage programmers, and, and, uh, and in fact, in a very basic way at the time, create one of the first virtualized uh, perimetry devices, um, uh, which is cloud-based. And um, I think just last year, we've probably screened 20,000 people uh, with online perimetry. We've diagnosed people with brain tumors that didn't know they have them. Wow. And it's really become something very, very um, interesting to see the power of telemedicine and internet uh, and to be able to follow that through over the last 15 years, even with that very uh, kind of a, a original device that we created uh, many years ago. Where can people find that? If they want to link that on their website, is that possible or drive patients to that? How can they find yeah. that? Yeah, this is online. It's been it's been there for um, many years now, four or five years. The the name of the foundation is Keep Your Sight Foundation, and the website is www.keepyoursight.org. Uh, interestingly, very different from the, the other technology, the intraoperative vibrometry, um, online screening took a different path. Uh, again, it was still innovation. We still de developed something new. Um, but I think ultimately I realized uh, that this was not something that should be in the private domain. Uh, I, I realized that this is not something that should be a commercial enterprise uh, because screening and public health is, is inherently public um, and it's really hard to charge for it. And, and, and really the benefit in the public domain and the public health domain was so much greater than, than keeping it in a, in, as a private enterprise doing screening and charging or flashing commercials. So that's why um, early on we decided to donate the technology and put it into a, a bona fide um, foundation, and I've been supporting that. Um, and again, it's something that we talk about uh, digital health now a lot, but something we created 15 years ago, and, um, and, and it's interesting to see how telemedicine uh, really evolves and and, and devices in ophthalmology like perimetry are perfect for this uh, because you can really plug them and virtualize them and deliver them online in a very scalable way. That's really interesting. And Sean, I think a lot of times, um, you know, in the American culture, we think about innovating as a mechanism to gain wealth or prestige or, you know, but a lot of times we think about it in terms of, 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 of gaining, you know, wealth. And 
I think a lot of times the people I've met in my life who have had the greatest impact on their field, it, that that is always something that if it happens and you end up making a profit off of your, your work, you're happy about that. But I think most people who end up being successful don't go into an enterprise with that being the main goal. Um, obviously, we all need to be able to fund our projects and exits are, are, are great ways to uh, keep that momentum going forward for future projects. But I think this is a really nice um, story about something that you felt like just needed to be done and you did the work because you saw an unmet need and when you realized that it would be more beneficial to just be out there for the public to use, you, that didn't stop you or dissuade you from, from moving forward. You said, hey, you know, this will this will just be a great contribution. And I, and I think that I don't want that message to be lost on other people who may be thinking about innovation and as, as a mechanism to, to gain wealth. I think innovation, and, and I think this is probably how you feel as well, innovation should be done for its own sake and to promote our field. And whether that means an economic um, good outcome or not, I think those who are passionate about it do it because they're passionate about it. I mean, what do you think about that? Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. Um, in fact, I, I would just add to this uh, uh, as an extension to your thoughts, which which I completely uh, echo, is that uh, innovation and innovating is a really, really, really hard way to make money. So there's better ways. If somebody wants to ju just go for the economic part and is really interested in the uh, in the pure financial profit, there's so many better ways to do that. And in fact, I mean, we can argue that medicine even is a very hard way. Uh, or a very circuitous way uh, to go about making money. So uh, again, this is something I talk to my kids as well. And 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 if if that is a driver, um, that's great. Uh, there are many ways one can approach that in a productive way. But going through medicine and going through innovation for the sake of enriching themselves, it's nice when it's a byproduct for right. sure. It's nice to get paid. Uh, but I think if you talk to most people who actually innovate or or try to solve problems and and have been successful at least the people that i interact with uh, almost everybody that i know would say it's great that you make money and it's great that you uh you add to your bottom line and you can pay for your kids education and uh, and so forth but um uh, you know this is really not the driver and it becomes really frustrating if that's the driver um as well you know because you end up missing the some of the fine points and some of the intricacies you know which you have to follow if you follow the money it's not that easy to innovate right that's right i think that's that's very very well said so talk to us about um maybe your second project if i think that was maybe um the idea for intraoperative aberometry tell me a little bit about that yeah i mean again this um this started in residency and i'm on the faculty at ucsf and i often interact with residents and um, and, and whenever uh, I interact with them, I, I think most of them are very surprised. Like, how can you really start something in residency? Because residency is a lot of scut work, you're learning, and, and frankly, you're, you're really trying to make buy and learn, and, and there's so many things on your plate. Uh, but for me, it did start and actually proved the point that you could start something that can turn into uh, more than an ARVO project. Um, and we started, I think it was in my second or third year of residency, um, and it started out again with a problem, Gary, as you mentioned. We were starting to have some patients that were coming to cataract surgery um, that had had, at the time, 
They had had RK or PRK, which was more popular back then, uh, and even some basic. And and it was just so frustrating to a figure out. Um, even in, in in those days, we didn't have good formulas, but it was really frustrating to figure out what IOL power to use. And uh, and even if you do, you go through the end and and you find out you're wrong. It really occurred to me at the time that if you uh, if you take out the lens before you put the IOL, you have this uh, very privileged state of the eye, which uh, which is the transiently aphakic state. Uh, right on the table, we have the eye where we've eliminated the confounding effect of the lens, and we have the pure optical system from the cornea all the way to the macula. And we can take a, almost like an optical biopsy of the of the eye to figure out the total optical deficit. And um, and that was just an idea, and I wasn't really sure how to approach it until it occurred to me at the time, uh, because we didn't have the Aura device, and we didn't, you know, that that was way later in terms of development. But how can you go out and very quickly prove that out? And in fact, um, the way we did it was um, I took the Nikon Retinomax, which is a portable autorefractor. And um, in some of my cataract cases, I think that was 15 or 20 cases. Actually, the case series we published in uh, uh, that was the first seminal publication for uh, intraoperative refractive biometry at the time. Uh, uh, we we did 20 cases or 25 cases where right at the time uh, after cataract extraction, I would stop. We would actually uh, have to make sure sterility was maintained. And we will take an optical reading, an auto-refraction, and we'll obtain the spherical equivalent, uh, aphakic spherical equivalent. And very quickly after I did about 15, 20 cases, without having a major in biostatistics, I realized, oh, there is an actual correlation that becomes apparent very quickly between the aphakic spherical equivalent and the uh, final refractive outcome. And so really... You know, I started reading upon that, and uh, obviously um, there were aphakic formulas that were done for clinical use. Um, but again, really nobody had taken an automated refractive reading biometry into the OR uh, and do that. And again, there was a lot of people that were very skeptical, and they said, well, you'll never be able to get a reading, or it would not work, or they'll have some sort of distortions on the cornea. There is a lot of people... Uh, who are extremely bright and 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 very reasonable, uh, they come up with a lot of good ideas of why something shouldn't work or it wouldn't work. Uh, at the time, I also had good friends like Bob Sinsky, who was a good friend of mine, and I also befriended and became close friend of Ken Hoffer, who was really you know one of the pillars in uh, uh, IOL calculations. And and it was interesting because even people like Ken, who were part of the establishment who drove uh, the the knowledge where and they were the experts of of IOL calculation with preoperative uh, uh, methodology, uh, he understood the potential here that we can go in a completely different level and move the curve. Because if you imagine all of the formulas of preoperative biometry we've been using, they come back from Fyodorov, right? Uh, from the 60s and 70s, they're about 50 years old. We're using old Russian technology that has been perfected obviously, with different formulas. But the bottom line is the biometry that uses the, the keratometry and the axial length yeah, through preoperative measurements is something that's been around since the 70s. Um, and, and again, I think we realized quickly that just because we have that 
privileged state of the eye when it's aphakic, transiently aphakic, and we can do that reading, we can capture something new, and then we can correlate it and derive um, an, a very powerful um, IOL estimation method. And it turned out exactly as we thought. We found out that it is extremely useful and, and predictable for uh, naive uh, virgin eyes that haven't had any refractive surgery. Um, and also we found out that it really helps nail down the IOL prediction in uh, eyes that have had prior refractive surgery. And, and again, we just published, I think, not long ago, one of the seminal papers with the intraoperative operometry in post-refractive eyes, where we're coming exactly, you know, in the old days, about maybe 30 to 40% of the eyes were within 75.75 or one day opter if they had prior refractive surgery. We're coming back on 90% and plus. So we've been able with this technology to solve one of the most challenging, I think, problems because those millions of patients who have received LASIK, uh, as you can imagine, are now marching towards the cataract age, and we really need the tools to give them the vision they expect. That's right. Because they already paid for their LASIK, and, <laughs> and they hope that that didn't really, in some way, uh, jeopardize their cataract surgery 10 or 15 years down the road because really that wasn't a risk that anybody ever told them about when they got their LASIK. So it was really essential that we as ophthalmologists solved that problem uh, and, I, and I think right now we have the tools and intraoperative aberrometry is one of it. But again, the technology took its different course. Uh, it, it ended up not being in the public domain. Um, I, I, uh, um, as a holder of all the patents for, for uh, uh, aphakic autorefraction, which really uh, covered the whole spectrum, which I wrote as, as a resident at the time with very little legal help. Uh, those were developed by, um, and I licensed them to uh, Wavetech. And Wavetech did a brilliant job, really, the engineers there and, and the team, with a lot of, a lot of uh, hard work to develop the ultimate device that we know had several lives. And, and it illustrates that ultimately, even if you have a great idea and you can quickly validate it and get a read, which we did about 15 years ago, um, it took another 15 years and, and probably close to $70 million of venture funding uh, to get it to, to where it really became uh, um, uh, introduced in our lives and, and in service to patients and, and uh, physicians. So again, uh, I think one, one realization or another take-home point, uh, Gary, as, as, as you know with your company as well, as you're doing this, that ultimately it's really hard to do things in the garage and then take them out. Like in the old days, people would do uh, their own instrument. I keep laughing with uh, with Bob uh, uh, at the time. Uh, hey, you know, the Sinsky hook was really successful. It's everywhere and everybody knows it. These days, uh, technology and innovation is way more complex. Right. Uh, and it requires a lot of validation. It requires a lot of uh, uh, quality processes. And it requires a team. And unfortunately, it requires capital. And, um, and I think we as innovators, uh, and I've been on both sides, uh, on, the, on the venture capital side and on, on the innovator side where, where you realize, you know, always you wish you, you got, a, you know, you felt like you probably deserve more than the venture capitalists will give you. Uh, but ultimately, uh, that path is, again, with the wave tech, you can see it took about a decade and, and millions of dollars and, and ultimately no guarantees until until you're you're finally there so um, it was good to see the technology come through but definitely 
as being one of the pioneers and the original uh, founders of that technology, I wouldn't want to take the credit for it because there's been a lot of work by many, many people. And, and actually, there is a lot of work now, um, you know, that is going to go into perfecting it and, and even making it better. Um, because one thing I realized that um, what we built at the time and, and with, uh, with the Aura device, it's probably one of the very first, if not the first, intraoperative biometry device a biometric device or, uh, that is an extension to the scope. And what we're going to see in the next five or 10 years, we're going to see that the uh, microscope and the surgical suite will turn into a cockpit where there's going to be a lot more uh, biometric devices, refractive devices, and so forth. Uh, but when we started, there was nothing. So it was really a challenge to figure out how to get it on the scope, how to make it um, integrated with the with the system and, and it's not perfect but it was the first or one of the very first devices that kind of started I think the whole diagnostic imaging and automated biometric uh, integration uh, in the surgical suite at uh, intraoperatively so one question I have from that story is so you were you were a resident you wrote the patents you did a little validation project with a, a Nikon uh, autorefractor and you 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 got the patents, but it says you said at some point you licensed that technology to WaveTech. Give me some sort of um, a roadmap for someone maybe who's a resident right now and it, it has an idea for a new technology. They may be doing the same kind of thing, trying to write a, a provisional patent or a utility patent. Maybe they've even done a poster project at Arvo, and um, they've proven that there's a there's something to this concept. How would you coach someone through trying to find a, a good partner to help take your technology and, and, and shelter, you know, shepherd it through the approval process? Yeah, I mean, I, I can tell you that I personally have advised so many people, um, uh, whether they're residents or not, but uh, in general, uh, colleagues uh, who have ideas. And, um, and, um, and I think that uh, it's, it's really not, it's not a cookie cutter process. I wish I would say it is. Um, the best and the most important thing I would say is manage expectations because um, I think that's where it breaks down the whole, um, the whole deal and it breaks down innovation. Um, uh, if you manage expectations, I think, uh, and you realize that, that you as an inventor or whoever comes up with the idea is not the beginning and end of that, um, I think it's much easier. Because many of those companies, and I think probably for many of them who are inventing and innovating, uh, if they kind of look at the history of some companies and technologies and read about them, maybe that will be the best thing that they can do to realize what goes into bringing those things to life and how many things actually fail. And that would really help people understand the other side because there is another side where investors and companies you know, lose a lot of money. And, you know, the statistics are maybe 80% of projects or venture funded companies don't succeed. So that is the other uh, side of the coin. Once you get to the point of, uh, of, uh, of having an expressed interest from a company, um, I think one should always engage a law firm uh, and, and not sign obviously anything until uh, you have legal counsel because those documents are complex uh, and obviously the companies have uh, a lot of legal advice. So manage expectations, number one, uh, very, very important. And that's more of a holistic type answer uh, for everybody. 
Um, and then the second is one, there is something on the table and, and understanding that, yes, I would like to work with this company. Let's do get the advice of, um, of a legal counsel, uh, IP counsel. Of course, they're not cheap, uh, but I think they're well worth it uh, when you get to that point. Because the way you sign or the way you uh, have the contract will determine uh, really the fate of that technology and also the fate of, you know, of your economics. Probably the third thing I think that's very important is, uh, is uh, really to look at the company and not only focus on the money factor. You know, maybe some companies would throw you more money up front or, or a higher rate. Uh, just really assess the ability of the company to deliver and the team behind the company because uh, there is a lot of times when people license technology and it doesn't see the light of day because the companies couldn't develop it or they couldn't execute and, and so forth. So um, that is sometimes even more important because getting a few percentage points lower on your uh, economics uh, is okay when this thing is successful versus having all of it when it doesn't go anywhere and there is no economics whatsoever. Yeah, having 100% of nothing is not a great deal, is it? <laughs> no, no, absolutely, absolutely. Sean, I'd love to you know, hear a little bit more about um, your journey with Transcend and the SciPass. You know, that's a device that I think as uh, – Cataract surgeons were all really excited to learn more about because of, of its recent approval and it's launching right now. Um, here again, it's another technology that, that you've helped develop that solves another big unmet need. And, you know, I'd love to just hear a little bit about where that idea maybe came from. And again, a little bit of how you walk through that, um, that development process. Yeah, I mean, again, um, I think many of the technologies I, I've been involved in different capacities, some of them as innovator, others as inventor, and others as developer, and um, and, and really uh, whatever it takes to really spearhead and get the technology to fruition. Because ultimately, I really don't feel that the fact that a technology is yours is what matters. Um, you, one can get on the bandwagon and drive innovation in many, many ways. Uh, and as you know, Gary, you're, you're a pioneer using cutting-edge technology that may be developed by somebody else, but you help make it better. That has a significant value. Uh, you know, before even Transcend, uh, I actually went to Genentech, and, and I was there for about six or seven years, uh, w which was a really great experience, too, because when I went there, Lucentis and Genentech were really uh, products and company that weren't heard in ophthalmology. It was still in the uh, research and development days, and we launched Lucentis. And, and to me, that was actually another great innovation, which was in the retina space. And, um, and again, I, I've been able to, to go from one place to another in terms of uh, innovation, because innovation could be in glaucoma, but it could be in retina, and it could be in cataract surgery today or tomorrow or in something else. And through the venture uh, uh, business, I've been exposed to and, and been interacting with people doing innovation outside ophthalmology. But, but again, Lucentis was an interesting um, uh, product, and, and I headed the group there towards the end uh, when I left in 2009. Um, and what was very interesting is I was kind of coming to, to terms, okay, well, we've already launched Lucentis. Uh, I was uh, helpful in engineering the programs for uh, diabetic macular edema, retinal vein occlusion, uh, and, and so forth. Um, 
I said, well, you know, that's a maturing product. I want to be back somewhere looking 10 years out because I really enjoyed that part. Once something already becomes commercial and, and, and mainstream, um, it, it, I realized this is not the part that I really love. So uh, I was looking for the next stage coming out of biotech uh, and of an extremely successful product as Lucentis. And, and again, one of my friends uh, and family friends and mentor, Gene Duan, who uh, had started working on Transcend and, and very early work with the SciPass Microsten, I said, Sean, I, I would really need some help. And, and this is a company where we're, you know, at the point of coming out and, and we need a, an expert team to develop it. And, um, and, and that was really at the stages when a company is just in technology is really coming out of the uh, of the garage and uh, had been fostered by the uh, Foresight uh, incubator. Um, and, and again, when I looked at that, and in fact, when, when I talked to some of my glaucoma uh, friends and specialists, uh, colleagues, they, they all said, well, really, we, we have trabeculectomy and that's really working well. Um, many of them were completely um, puzzled by why would we do something like this and why would we put an implant in the supraciliary or suprachoroidal space at the time, uh, as we thought. So, um, again, the feedback I got from friends and family was, in fact, discouraging in some ways. Really? Because most people really, I mean, MIGs really didn't exist at the time. There was uh, maybe one other product uh, ahead with, um, uh, with the Glaucus, but, again, this was still technology the technology was way out of the mainstream, and um, and again, um, most people simply couldn't quite see the value, and it wasn't that apparent until you kind of figure out that when somebody tells you that we've had something for 70 years, and it seems to be working okay, and when I have trabeculectomy patients coming, you know, a month after surgery, not very happy, uh, I just said, well, first, these are statements that didn't reconcile, they didn't compute, because A, trabeculectomy patients are not okay and b you know after 70 years maybe it's time for something to change right and again i think that i took a risk because there was really nothing to to kind of stand on except for the fact that i knew as a clinician that cyclodialysis was a really good way to lower iop and so if we can keep it open it's a really good way to approach iop lowering and then if we put an implant there, which will keep it open. That's that's actually great. That would give us a good purchase on on IOP lowering. And again, you have to trust your gut and intuition. And Gary, as you know, with many of these things, it's much easier if you're a clinician and kind of have a sense of what might work and what wouldn't work right. than somebody that um, is a finance guy or or a commercial guy. So um, so I, I really uh, started working with Transcend and 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 spearheading the development program. All of the uh, research and development there with uh, the team. We had a phenomenal team, and and frankly, it was it was a lot of fun. It was one of the best and one of the hardest things we've done, because, again, maybe another learning point for this is when you come up with a new technology, always ask yourself: Is it just a new technology, or is it a new category of treatment? Right. Because MIGS in general is a new category of treatment. Uh, Lucentis and anti-VEGF is a new category of treatment. Intraoperative aberometry is a new category of treatment. It's not just another antibiotic, and it's not just another like anti-VEGF now, right. or, or 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 just another IOL. And that to me 
really is very important because creating and coming with a new categorical treatment paradigm is extremely uh, difficult and ultimately it's, it's immensely more complicated because you have to figure out everything as you go. There's not that many things that uh, really you can follow and, and the regulatory path and the development path and the clinical science you have to do. And, and it's a complex development because doing a PMA with one of the largest clinical trials in surgical glaucoma uh, that, that was done with Transcend is huge. I mean, this was there, there was definitely no cookbook to that. And again, something that requires a high expertise, dedicated people, and a lot of capital. So, um, so that that actually uh, turned out very successful. And the technology we, we just published the results uh, in the Journal of Ophthalmology. And, and, and again, I can tell you, you never know how things will turn out. I've been kind of lucky that pretty much most of the technologies I've been involved really turned out fine. Um, I don't know what it is, uh, you know, because I'm sure I'm going to make a mistake uh, next time. But, um, but I think ultimately all of these technologies could have failed uh, in, in a big way if we didn't have the right people thinking through how to develop them, how to improve them. Uh, and how to make the idea uh, turn into a solution, and then the solution turn into a product, and then the product turn into a business. Because right. all of these things are necessary in order to have a great company uh, and a great uh, technology that comes out. Well, that's, that's very well said. All those things are true, and you can have a great solution that at the end of the day doesn't uh, pay for itself, and those are those are products that aren't a good business. So... Um, very true. Well, I want to give you a little bit of a chance here at the end to talk about your latest invention and company, the MyLoop. This is something, this is actually how you and I met. I was um, invited to uh, take a peek at this technology. It looks really, really interesting to me. And really, again, trying to find a niche to solve an unmet need. Um, tell us a little bit about this, if you don't mind. Yeah, I, I, I'm just trying to think as you were asking me, and I, and I probably should have known you're going to ask me about this uh, um, uh, because I'm not sure how much is in the public domain on that yet. Okay. But, uh, but I, will, I will actually say one thing, kind of stepping back a little bit. Uh, again, I, I started in, in, uh, in, with a perimetry in glaucoma, then we went into the cataract refractive with aura, then lucentis in retina, then um, glaucoma with MIGS. And it was interesting that, um, you know, FACO, what we do every day as surgeons, uh, which has been so successful, has been around with for 50 years. Actually, Ann Coleman and I uh, were talking the other day and at the SCRS Foundation Board, uh, we're kind of getting excited about next year because next year is going to be 50 years of FACO. Uh, um, and, and that's a huge milestone. Very few technologies, uh, if you look at, for example, things like computers and mobile phones and internet and all that, Many few, very few things actually last through 50 years. Uh, so FACO has been extremely successful, but at the same time, it's kind of like trabeculectomy. We're still pretty much doing cataract surgery the way we've been doing it uh, for um, 50 years. Uh, again, we are serving the population well, and, and it's great. But, you know, I do a lot of missionary work, and, and I can tell you that FACO is really, really challenging, and it's not moving the needle when it comes to the heart cataracts or the third world. Um, and also in the first world, it still introduces a lot of undesirable energy 
and leads to endothelial cell loss and all kinds of things like that, which we know, and kind of the assumption behind FEM2 has been, you know, let's try to use that to reduce phacoenergy energy for all good reasons. Uh, but I think where we are with MyLoop and, and also with the micro-interventional aspects is that uh, uh, having worked in micro-interventional technology with glaucoma and, and great engineers who have a lot of experience from the cardiovascular space, one thing we realize there is a lot of innovation and a lot of things from interventional uh, radiology and cardiovascular medicine that, that uh, from, from the micro-interventional aspects, which haven't trickled down to ophthalmology. And you can see we're still doing capsulorexis in many cases with the forceps, as it's been done uh, more than 50 years ago. We're still doing uh, FACO with uh, the same way and the same probe as 50 years ago. Uh, and yet people are now putting coils and they're putting all kinds of stents all the way to your brain and in your heart. So, um, so what, all I'll say about what we're working on next is that uh, I think we, we are on the threshold where technology and innovation outside ophthalmology in those fields is becoming really pertinent uh, to cataract surgery. And we can probably uh, uh, change the paradigm there too or improve FACO tremendously to make everybody a great FACO surgeon, uh, uh, to make FACO even more adopted uh, globally, uh, and potentially in the future to go beyond FACO to be able to reduce or eliminate the energy uh, that we deliver in the eye uh, to take out the cataract. So again, you kind of pursue innovation where it is and hopefully we'll be successful here. We have a great team. Uh, and, um, and, and I think this is one of the technologies I'm, uh, I'm working on. And we have another one also called Inovia, which I don't think you and I probably talked before, which does micro uh, delivery or micronization of therapeutics. It uses piezo print technology. So you can print the drug on the ocular surface by delivering exact micro doses versus an eyedropper. And that's another thing that, you know, when I look at it fundamentally, you know, we've been giving drops to, the, to, to our eyes and to patients' eyes for 200 years exactly the same way with a pipette. And that's not a good way to do it. So we've come up with uh, a technology uh, just like in the inkjet printers that uses piezo uh, ejection and can literally spray the exact microdoses of five or eight microliters, which is the entire tear lake that's necessary for the ocular surface and you can deliver all these eye drops in the eye before you can blink you know beating the blink uh, in the same way as inkjet printers deliver very precisely uh, uh, print and ink to to the paper to really pixelate uh, the picture so I think that those two are kind of the technologies within ophthalmology that I'm, I'm uh, intimately involved in uh, and, I, and I'm excited because, again, these are big areas where if we're successful, we can, A, change how every drug is delivered. And, and in fact, this technology has smart elements. It syncs with the phone, and we know when the patient gave it. Uh, and it has a lot of benefits of really 21st century delivery of, uh, of uh, medication. And, and the other part is really moving the bar forward and pushing the envelope for cataract surgery, which, you know, has really improved but it's kind of like pre-op biometry. It has improved, but it really goes back 70 years right. uh, or 50 years. It's about the same, same thing we're using. 
uh, the chassis is the same. We're putting a little bit better things, but maybe it's time for a Tesla or maybe it's time to <laughs> really get rid of the engine and put something new because only then you can majorly inflect the curve right. uh, by mounting a new technology curve and, and, and taking off. So we'll see, but it's exciting. And, and Gary, I, I really think all the work that you're doing on your IOL and how you're approaching this uh, is it, really great um, as well. We hope to see a lot of new technologies uh, uh, in, on the horizon because I think now also the FDA has become a lot more efficient and, and, and I think we have a real opportunity to partner with them and partner with the clinicians to get these technologies out uh, in, in an in a expedient way. Well, Sean, I really just want to say thank you for uh, giving us a little bit of a peek into your history. Um, I've learned so much just, you know, every time I talk to you, um, it is a, a real learning experience. And so I knew that the people who listen to this podcast would, uh, would love to hear a little bit about your journey. Um, it sounds like disruptive innovation and early stage disruptive innovation is really where your sweet spot is. And, and that's, that's, that's where I love to innovate as well. You know, take, taking risks, making big changes, kind of resetting the deck and then letting other people make in, incremental improvements, uh, through the years. Um, so Sean, you know, you have an open invitation on this program. If you ever have something you'd like to uh, share with us, um, a new technology, some, some new ideas, um, just give me a call. We'll, we'll get you right back on the podcast. Um, because disruptive innovation is something that we all need to be uh, cheering on, uh, both as innovators and just fellow clinicians. So thank you so much for coming on the program. Thank you, Gary. And let's innovate in 2017 and beyond. That sounds good. That sounds good. This has been Ophthalmology Off the Grid with Gary Wirth. For more insights into the minds of ophthalmology's innovators, check out previous episodes at itube.net backslash podcasts. Thanks for listening to another episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid. If you like what you hear, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. And let us know if there are any topics out there you'd like to delve into. This has been Dr. Gary Wirtz. See you next time. Ophthalmology Off the Grid is an independent podcast supported with advertising by Alcon.